Hey, it's Eric G. Around the House is sponsored by Baldwin Hardware. For 75 years, Baldwin Hardware has been known for its first-class quality and craftsmanship in door and cabinetry hardware. As an alumnus of the Baldwin Hardware Design Council, I can say I have seen the details and quality from design to the finished product. If you're looking for a new style and old-world craftsmanship, I can tell you there is only one Baldwin Hardware. Check out what would look great in your home at baldwinhardware.com. It's Around the House. Welcome to Around the House with Eric G and Caroline B, where today we're going to dial the fun meter back and get into a much more serious topic. A topic that seems to be really close to everybody's home. By one degree of separation or another, this could easily be us or someone we know or a loved one. And as contractors, we often deal with the issue of clutter and people who are collecting items, and we don't always know how to approach it as a professional. So we're going to dive deep into this so you and we can all understand how to help people out that maybe are family, friends, loved ones, and get people the help they need, or just be able to handle it correctly. So enjoy a listen to a little more serious side of Around the House. When it comes to remodeling and renovating your home, there is a lot to know, but we've got you covered. This is Around the House. Welcome to Around the House with Eric G and Caroline B, where we talk everything about your home, including home improvement every single weekend. Thanks for joining us today. Well, Caroline and I have a great guest here that we're going to get into a deep conversation with, right, Caroline? Yeah, this is a little bit more of a serious topic for us. You know, we usually talk more fun stuff, and this is something that really needs to be looked at, I think, with homeowners. You know, and when what kind of has brought this on is... I've got a family member that struggles with this and, you know, I've seen on television, you know, that hoarding show out there that's called hoarders. And I, and it kind of, to me has always glorified and shown that there's this quick fix. We clean it up, throw it away. We'll throw some care at them and everything's good next episode. And I thought we should dive and take a deep dive into this and really get the facts on it instead of kind of just what the television shows us on it. So we brought in Ann Pagano, licensed clinical social worker. She's also the director of the hoarding disorder resource and training group. And she's got a lot of other things she does as well. And welcome to Around the House. Hi, Eric. And hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for um, inviting me today. And I really appreciate the chance to talk with you and your listeners about hoarding disorder. And I I look at it as a spectrum from clutter to chaos. And Eric, to your point about the, the hoarding shows on TV, I find them very voyeuristic for people who don't know what hoarding disorder looks like. It gives people sort of an inside peek into what a potentially hoarded environment would look like. However, I find the shows there um, very unrealistic, as you were intimating, and they capture people at their most vulnerable times and their most distressing times. And the shows are aiming for that, and they're going for ratings. So they're not going to pick somebody who's well-prepared and emotionally ready to start discarding. They're going to find somebody who's in crisis 
The shows typically pay for the cleanout, and cleanouts can run from twenty thousand to the hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the size or the amount of squalor. So there is a financial motivation for people to get involved. And the shows oftentimes also have a mental health consultant supporting. But the way the show is edited is that it does look like within a scope of an hour, the home goes from utter chaos to a home (laughs) that Martha Stewart could come over and have tea. It's unrealistic. Um, we, we it does know, not work that way. We know from research that full cleanouts like this are very traumatic and harmful to people. And we can get into the, the trauma behind hoarding disorder more. But there's also close to 100% recidivism rate with hoarding behavior unless there is treatment and support and third-party follow-up. So every once in a while, the hoarding shows will do a where are they now show. And many times you will see that everything has returned to its current state. So I'm not a big fan of these shows. I've received calls requesting names of people to have on their show. And I feel it's a breach of privacy and it's not therapeutically sound for them. So we, in essence, do not support these shows beyond the the voyeuristic component or the ability to help people understand that hoarding is a significant issue out in our communities. It is. I know Caroline's ran into it. I've run into it multiple times as an interior designer. Um, I had a client that um, it was kind of a little bit different one that I was kind of surprised how this went. I pulled up in front of the house normal suburbia house in Seattle. It was really nice. And, um, open the door, you know, she knocked on the door, opened it up and it was five and a half feet tall. Cause I'm about six feet tall. And there was a single track to each area of the room. And I thought what was interesting was, is that this person, and she's the most wonderful lady. She had these six curio cabinets that had the same exact cat figurine on the shelves that were all lit beautifully, perfectly put there. And then her cats were in this zoo like exhibit where she had, you know, very high vaulted ceilings with her cats were living in this luxurious full one inch thick glass. Like it was the zoo, this beautiful place for cats to live. And the rest of the house was just chaos. And I was in there to put new countertops in come back a couple years later, she wanted me to do her kitchen countertops. And when I was leaving after that project, she said, I'm just retiring this year. So I'm really getting after my house. And, you know, uh, I didn't give her enough credit because I was, Oh, that's great. That's great. Walked away going, odds are that's probably not going to happen in my experience. But I felt good when I came back the next year, because that six foot pile was only about 18 inches high the next year. So she had, put in some solid effort. I don't know what it took to get there, but I know that's not typical how those things go because it, from my understanding, at least, and maybe I'm wrong, there needs to be some significant help from family members, mental health professionals to really power through that situation. Yeah, that's a phenomenal difference for her to to have mastered, which is really to her credit. But they find that 
about four to seven percent of the adult population have hoarding disorder. And hoarding disorder is a psychiatric diagnosis since 2013. But researchers and specialists feel that the percentage is really a lot higher, but it's unrecognized because of the the shame and lack of reporting due to the the shame of of reporting. So... um, there's a, there are a lot of situations out there. If you're in a rural area, four to seven percent could be in you know different houses a couple of miles away from each other. People might not know about them. But when you think of New York, where I am, and um, the the high density of the population in apartment buildings, we're dealing with a tremendous amount of situations, even within the same building, where landlords and co-op boards and building management companies are really grappling with not only the, the interior of that particular uh, unit, but also the the health and safety of its um, other tenants, usually the ones predominantly above and below and side to side of that of that unit. So it it really is a, it's a community issue. It's a public health issue, and because it's psychiatric, people don't really understand. It's, it's, it's harder for people to appreciate the nuances of a mental health condition as opposed to a physical condition, because once there's a psychiatric condition, it's considered um, a disability. So people with hoarding disorder are covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act when it comes to supporting them and helping them to adapt their environments which is very helpful when we're challenged with a notice to cure or, um, you know, an eviction notice or a landlord gives them a note and says, you have to have this all cleaned up in two weeks. That's not realistic. It's a psychiatric condition that's been ongoing. So that two weeks is just not appropriate for them. So what we will often do is help them write letters of accommodations with sort of a treatment care plans in place to say, this is what we've identified. These are the the codes that are out of compliance, the violation codes, and this is our plan of attack. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're working. It's measurable and it's time limited. So we can tell them it's going to take us four more months. Can we review this in four months as opposed to two weeks? And unless they've got a serious problem with that, or there's an intense red flag that has to be addressed earlier, such as an extermination issue um, or or electrical issue, that they really should be able to recognize and accommodate that. But it's so much easier for people to understand and see physical disabilities if somebody's in a wheelchair then the request for accommodation of a wheelchair ramp seems understandable and viable. It's tangible. People, there, there's an emotional component to hoarding. People will think of people as lazy or messy or uncaring and all these negative adjectives, which really hurt the person with hoarding disorder. And note, I'm, I'm not using the term hoarder. 
to be to call somebody a hoarder is disrespectful. It's labeling them to their condition. It's labeling them to their behavior. People are so much more complex and so much more deserving to be seen as in their entirety. So we really have a big um, educational push for for people, professionals, family members, even people who self-identify with hoarding disorder, not to refer to themselves as hoarders because it just seems to have such a negative component. And so as an environmental consultant, I get pulled into a lot of homes and we see this, and I'm in the tri-state area like you are, so we see this more common than not, right? So we get in People are unhealthy, and the reason they call us is because they actually don't feel well. More so that they don't realize what's going on in their environment, or they don't see that they're you know that they're collecting things. So then we have dust mite issues, we have mold problems, we have water damage, we have all these things that come. And so, from my perspective, I've always tried to teach my client not really addressing the clutter issue, but I try to explain to them because we're not we're not prepared, right? As environmental consultant, we don't have the the licensed social worker mentality or the experience to deal with it. So I kind of try to explain to them that it's really unhealthy and we're more worried about it as a health aspect. But is there any hints you can give contractors like Eric and myself and people who are going into these environments, how to relate and then also try to help at the same time, you know, and, and provide some knowledge to them. There's something they could hear and accept. Well, I, I think that the two scenarios that, that you and Eric um, provided were both clients who invited you into the home. So if you have a client who's allowing a professional, a third party into the home, you're already ahead of the game because most of the clients that I run into have not let their family members in their homes for seven or more years and nobody's been in there until they fall and the EMS come to get them because they fractured their hip and mm. the EMS walked out saying, you know, holy moly, you know, that, that place was really challenging. We could barely get in. Mm -hmm. So if you're working with somebody who brings you in and they, they are identifying something, but they don't know how to label it, we always want to give them the lead, let them be the, the team player and, First and foremost, ask them, you know, what would you like to achieve? Why are you feeling we need to work on this at this point? Because oftentimes their goal may be different from what you see, but if their goal gets you to the same um, end, Please. the same purpose, mm -hmm. the same result, it doesn't matter. So oftentimes when I've worked with somebody with hoarding disorder, and we've gotten to the point of having to make a, a plan of correction. And I ask them, what is your goal? And their goal could be, I want to get my daughter off my back, or I don't want you as a social worker having to come visit me you know, every week, or the landlord giving me dagger eyes. Fine, <laughs> fine, you know, you know let's all good. those as our goals. And I try not to take it personally, but it's if they, they want to have their peace and control, it's going to be the same as if I did some psychoeducation with them and talked about the harm reduction and the safety and the health and all of that, that will follow. But if that's not on their radar, 
I'm not, I'm not going to waste time trying to help them because hopefully as we go through the changes, they will start to notice, gee, I can actually sit at my dining room table. Gee, I can open up my kitchen cabinets and see that I've got enough Campbell's tomato soup to life, live a lifetime. But it's not unless we empower them and they lead the change that we've got a greater chance of it being sustainable. So, Anne, I have a question. Is there something that commonly triggers this disorder or is it just like many other instances that uh, some people are more susceptible to it than others? Are there, are there any general causes to this? There's multiple factors and it's still under review. The, the area of hoarding disorder research is still fairly new within its infancy and infancy. Now I'm saying within the last 20 to 25 years, um, they found now that there's a potentially 10 to 14 percent genetic component so that people first degree relatives may have this genetic component so you might see two sisters who have hoarding disorder they've been doing some blind twin studies and they've done separated at birth twin studies so that it wasn't a learned (laughs) environment um component Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. but what has been traditional with with hoarding disorder is reviewing the events of trauma in somebody's life because we all deal with trauma very very differently and depending on our own resiliency trauma can really um, knock us off our, our course and traumas that we frequently seen that have triggered hoarding like behavior has been um something that caused post-traumatic stress disorder, the living through the um, depression, divorces, loss, deaths and loss within somebody's uh, lifetime. And more recently, we've been finding relocation. So people who have moved from their homes into independent living, assisted living, senior housing, but without their control, without them leading the decision to do this. It's a traumatic adjustment reaction where a lot of people will say, I wasn't ready. I've been, I've been ripped from the things that I love that have surrounded me for all of my life. And they will oftentimes go and try to recreate those environments. So where they might've lived in a five bedroom colonial home and moved to a one or two bedroom apartment, very quickly, you will start to see the reaccumulation of items where they're either trying to bring back or retrieve items that family members took, go on eBay to try to replicate them, or start shopping to to bring things in to get them that, that feeling. And to the point, Eric, of your woman with the cat figurines and the, the cats, is, is that Oftentimes, what a, a t- technical factor of hoarding is that the belongings take over the home. They start to own the home, mm-hmm. and the person just sort of resides in it. And their residential ability to reside there gets smaller and smaller to the point where oftentimes people will have one key place where they will eat, sleep 
do everything because they have no access to any of the other spaces within the home. So we call those those little spaces cocoons, command central, and it might be a recliner or an easy chair where people will eat and sleep and be able to watch TV if their TV is still functional. But I've also run into people who put down a, a comforter or may even be sleeping on, on newspapers or piles of things in a hallway because the, every other room is filled with items. So it becomes very concerning when the home becomes unusable for the intent that each particular room was intended for use. And that just creates problem after problem when it's the bedroom, they're not sleeping in the bedroom. When it's the dining room, people are not sitting and eating. If it's the kitchen, we start to run into issues of spoiled food in the refrigerator, um, utilities that are no longer working, bathrooms that are so full. With hoarding disorder, a, a key a, a, a key visual that can help somebody start to get their radar up if it's hoarding is that every horizontal surface is covered. And a horizontal surface can be a countertop. It can be the floor. It can be on top of the refrigerator. It can be on top of the stove. If you think of what's in the oven, you open it up, there's racks in the oven. Those are also horizontal surfaces. So we will find aerosol cans and paper and everything in any place imaginable to the point where people might have small little paths where you can see the floor where they might be able to walk. But oftentimes people are stepping over things because everything is important. There's no sense of categorization. There's difficulty making decisions. And the, the pieces of hoarding disorder is the excessive acquisition of more things coming into the home than going out, the dysfunction of the environmental home space, and the extreme distress in discarding. And, and the you know there's ambivalence about discarding, but the extreme part of it is is very oftentimes the hardest thing for us to deal with. And how do they see it through their eyes, right? So I've had clients, and I think when you talked about the trauma piece, I had a client who lost her son. So she started this behavior after it was an extreme loss of her son. And then I've had other clients who had strokes and really health issues, and they started to accumulate things. So vastly different scenarios. And and I think we're all like, you know, when you think about it, we're all like one step away. People say, oh, that could never be me. But we never know, right? I mean, could we have health issues where we could all kind of be in that position where we can't clean up, we can't, we can't um, fend for ourselves and we start to collect things. So I'm kind of interested in seeing it through their eyes and how like we look at them and say, oh, there's so much stuff everywhere. But how are they looking at that environment? How are they, what, what do they see when they look at that space? Well, those are very good examples of of two scenarios, one which indicates a clinical diagnosis of hoarding disorder and one that would not be a clinical diagnosis of hoarding disorder because of a medical event. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll start with the medical event one because that one's easier. If somebody has had 
a, a stroke or a heart attack or a traumatic brain injury, and there's been neurological changes that have gone on, there are neurological changes that have impeded maybe their decisional capacity yes. or their functional capacity. The difference I had a family member that, who I had a family member who that's exactly what happened. Prior to the stroke, he was fine, and then after the stroke, he started to collect all of this stuff, and the house became um, to the point that the family had to go in and clean it out right multiple times. So yes, exactly. So typically, when it's due to a medical condition, oftentimes it presents more as a scenario of self-neglect where somebody just cannot meet their daily needs. Their behavior has changed a little bit, but they're not, there's not necessarily this compulsion and distress related to it. Sometimes there can be, but oftentimes, especially with seniors, people get overwhelmed they're, they're not spry anymore. They have arthritis. Maybe they had a, a joint or two replaced. Um, it's, they get winded doing things and they put things off. So laundry doesn't get done. Groceries stay in the bags on the table instead of going into the shelves because they, you know, they're going to use it anyway. Why put it away when, you know, it's easier to have it out. And this can quickly accumulate. If you've ever seen somebody, and I know I'm guilty of this, where I will keep my, I'll bring my mail in and I'll put it on my hall table and yes. I might not feel like going through it every night. I've told myself every, every Friday night I have to do it because I have to sort out what's important and what isn't. And I have that, <laughs> knock on wood, I still have that decisional capacity to be able to capacity, do that. Right? But somebody, somebody who has a difficulty with decision-making um, and they want to be able to do things right and everything is important, that pile of mail may also be um, assimilated into a pile with... Uh, supermarket flyers with um, pictures that the family sent you. It could be a whole mishmash of things because in that person's mind, it's all important. So there's no separation of categorization where they didn't throw out their flyers and they didn't, you know, they didn't sort out their, their bills and, you know, look at everything and maybe file it separately because the ability to file and categorize just isn't there. It really isn't there. So to expect somebody to clean their desk, if a professional organizer goes in and says, I have a lovely system for you and, you know, here are the files and here's what we can do. It may work for 80% of the people out there, but for some people with organizational deficits, it doesn't work because with hoarding disorder, there's also an issue of out, of out of sight, out of memory. And people are afraid and worried that they're going to forget what they have. So another component is keeping everything out visually. Even though it might be in piles, they can say, well, I, I know generally where it is. Um, but creative situations and remediation and working with people who have this out of sight, out of memory, 
would be to do more adaptive kind of organizing where we, we've worked with environmental people who have helped the homeowners take their, their opaque wooden doors to their kitchen cabinets off. We've had people go to an open closet concept. We've, we've switched people from their wooden bureaus to clear plastic bin drawers that we will label with intimates, um, shirts, or whatever. Sort of like something we would do with somebody who has some beginning cognitive deficits with dementia. I'm not at all trying to infer that they're both together, but when you need these kind of cueing triggers to know where things are, it's comforting and people are more apt to be able to say, okay, that drawer says socks, that will be the home for my socks. I will put my socks there. And when I look over there, I can see the socks in there to validate and comfort me that they're there. So whether it's a physical component or it's somebody who's doing the collecting, um, again, this woman may have started off collecting all of her her, um, cat figurines and collecting her cats. Um, I do want to stop and say a lot of times we think of a person with hoarding disorder as the elderly woman with a thousand cats. It's actually equally... um, men and women together and there is no difference in socioeconomic or cultural factors and there's only one continent that does not have a reported case of hoarding disorder can you either if you want to guess which which continent that is i'm gonna guess that's antarctica really (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Is it? You're right. (laughs) And nobody can really. (laughs) Did you you see my presentation? Why did you think that? Why did you think Antarctica? Uh, Well, Antarctica is the only one because you, you, everything there is flown in typically. So there's not really a chance for anybody to get going on. It's a scientific community down there and you have limited access in and out. So they're not going to let you do that. Uh, it's just going to be, it's, it's a policy thing. It's like being on a military base and being in a barrack. You're not going to have access. Structure in is that if we have more, if we have more structure, does that help? Well, I, I think, I think when you're, you have limited access, so we'll joke that once Amazon is able to deliver there, you know, all the barriers floodgates will open, but it's, it's curious. And it could also, maybe it's temperature, because as of the last time I checked, Antarctica was the only continent also that had not had a reported case of any of the hmm. COVID variables. And so they have a team of scientists down there, up there, testing it constantly to be able to see what are the factors, why isn't there. And certainly there's a, a, a reduced population there, but again, the cold, probably the limited exposure to other people. But it's, I just think it's too cold to do anything there, <laughs> nice. including gathering. Well, I've got a, que- I got a question for you, Anne, that I'd like to ask. That It's a serious one because, for instance, I've got a family member that I haven't been in their house in 20 plus years, even though they live within, you know, a day's drive of me. I know when their garage door broke, it took them three to four days to clear it out so they could have a garage door technician come in there. 
And I'm not going to get any more personal stuff, but you see where I'm going with that. He's got a kid. And long story short, no one in my family has addressed this. It has always been the unspoken discussion. How does a family, now that we're around the holidays, and we're starting to have more conversations with people because maybe we're getting together more, and we're starting to get people back together into groups again, how do we start to address this situation and helping out other family members or friends that you can tell that, well, there's a chance they're struggling with this? One of the biggest barriers mental health specialists or people who want to assist and intervene run into is the fact that in our country, we, we are an autonomous nation and people have the right to be independent and people have the right to make their own decisions, even if they're really, really bad ones. So unless something is directly impacting their own or somebody else's personal health and safety and somebody else could also mean um, animals. So if there's another frail elder in, in the home, if there are children under the age of 18 in the home, and if there are animals in the home who are being impacted by this person's behavioral living um, issues, they do not, they do not have to be impacted by it. So when I hear your quick description of this scenario with with a family member with a child you saw his garage I'm going to think that if that's the way his garage looks the home probably looks similar my biggest concern would be for that child um, because they're one of the biggest traumas we are finding is children who are growing up in in hoarded environments and there's a, a lack of consistent parenting, that there is a lack of um, normalcy. Children in hoarded environments typically cannot bring any children, other friends into the home. And they also think of this as normal because they, they don't know any different. And a lot of times kids become parentified if their parents are unable to take care of them. There are kids who will start to make dinners or they'll get themselves a bowl of cereal and stand in front of the TV because they can't sit down anywhere, mm -hmm. but affects them emotionally. It affects them educationally if they're not able to sit down and, and do homework anywhere. And this gets internalized and stays with them as an adverse childhood experience. And histories of people who have gone through this. There are some people who have left home or um, emancipated themselves at an early age because they can't deal with it anymore. Others who have had such an aversion to it that when they become independent adults, they become neat freaks. I don't want to use the word obsessive, but they everything has to have its own place. Everything has to be clean where they will overcompensate everything that they grew up with. And then others, because it's what they learned, will repeat the cycle. So then you've got that repetitive as opposed to genetic cycle of continuing hoarding as, as a means of, of coping or emotional things. So my biggest concern in that situation would be having a relationship with that 
mm-hmm. kid and and maybe saying you know where where do you you know do you have a desk do you, do you what what's your room like it, it's it's hard for another family member to do it because you don't want to risk your relationship with the adult parental figure but at the other times um a lot of us as professionals are mandated child abuse reporters. Yep. So it, it is an ethical issue just to make sure that that child is safe and things are, are functioning, let alone talk to the, the adult about it. Um, yeah. It's tough because, you know, looking at, looking at this story real quick, a child is over 18 now, just recently. Um, but you know, I, I can, I can safely say, I don't, I don't know of a single time that they had somebody over at the house to visit, which to me as a kid, I can't imagine as a child not being able to have a friend over at the house at any time, because I, I lived a fairly normal childhood where I had people over at my house. I was over at the friend's house. We were out riding bikes, be home with the streetlights were on, you know, that kind of, kind of thing. And I, I can't imagine any child having to live through that type of a situation growing up and then try to deal with adulthood with, with, with that being what seems normal. Yeah. It becomes a big psychological scar and there, there is a group out there that's called children of hoarders and that's the name that they, they chose. And they're doing a a lot of outreach to current teens to give them a safe space to, connect with with peers or to be able to hear the stories of other adult they call themselves survivors to be able to not only give themselves a voice but give themselves a community to start to to band together and have people understand things and there's there's a a big challenge where adult survivors of of hoarded homes don't necessarily have much empathy for people with, with hoarding disorder. And they say, oh, the professionals spend so much time on trying to understand and work with people. They see them more as abusers. Um, so it just, it's helping all of us have greater insight and understanding of the deep roots that hoarding behavior can have within a family and I, system. I think, and I like, wow. I love this topic because like I said before, I feel like we're all one degree or know somebody who has this issue. Like people think, oh, that's not me. And I don't know anybody, but I mean, just talking between Eric and I, I've had family members, I've had friends. I mean, it's more common than people even realize. I mean, I see it all the time. And so, you know, I had a close family friend and um, when their daughter came to the house, she, she was there and she acknowledged how organized our utensil drawer was. And she's a young girl. And she was like, I wish our utensil drawer looked like this. And so people think it doesn't affect the kids, but they know. And she was maybe, I don't know, nine or 10 at the time. So they understand mm-hmm. something's not correct. And Carolyn, your, your, your question was, you know, do, do pe- are people able to see this? What, what is their sense of their environments? And what often happens is that there's, there's value categories. So what, we, the outsiders, the family members, the third parties, visualize as clutter or unnecessary items, they may see as very, very valuable items. So something might have a sense of utility to them, and that might be saving 
all the newspapers, having stacks and stacks of newspapers and asking them, why is it important to have this? They might say, well, I can always check and see what was going on on November 1st, 1976. And the logical response to that would be, well, you can always look that up on the computer. You can get that information very quickly. That's not the point. We go back to the memory. Mm -hmm. They like the tangible aspect of everything. They like to feel it. They want to see the advertisements. They want to see the price of the newspaper. To them, it's holding on to their- And there's nothing wrong with that, Anne. I mean, those are legitimate feelings, right? So it's not that that there's anything specifically wrong how they see it. It just creates a health, the, what they want to do creates a health issue, creates a structural it's, issue, et cetera. It's, 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 well, it's, it's the, it's the excess and it's, the, it's not that they're collecting. Collectors usually preserve and display things. So if they were collect, I know people who, who collected life magazines or national geographics or would collect um, headlines of significant events um, in newspapers. But when somebody is just letting things grow and grow, they're, they're not dealing with it. It's not really helpful, but it's protecting them. And many times when things, and, and utility can also be all those tops and bottoms of um, takeout food containers, which we all have. But I know when, when you open up your cabinet drawer and all of them fall on top of you, you'll take a moment and sort them out and put the bottoms and tops together so that you've got matching pairs. And then you might decide, well, I'm going to keep eight sets because I do like to use them to store food. And then um, you're, gonna, you're going to um, put the rest of them in recycling. But with somebody with hoarding disorder, if they see the utilitarian purpose of this, and you, you ask them a curious question and say, why do you want to save 18 tops and 12 bottoms? And they may come up with it because I found people with hoarding disorder are also incredibly bright, incredibly creative, and have an, an eye for things that many of us don't even have. They can say, oh, well, I use, I use these tops. I could use it as a cat food dish if I needed one. Or um, someday I want to, if I clean my living room, I want to go start painting again so I could use it as a painting palette. And those kind of reasonings I, I call the woulda, coulda, shouldas because it's something they want to do. And they would rather collect all the items to be able to do that do project, it, right. but yet never achieve the project. So everything, it's more the accumulation that, that gives them that rush than actually getting to the finished product. And then there's also issues of things that are that hold memories for them. So I had one client who was a, a middle-aged woman, slightly maybe, maybe hitting her 60s and had a grown son and a granddaughter. She was holding on to her son's crib, his stained onesies, his broken toys, everything that he ever touched was in the house. Wow. And he'd come and say, mom, why are you holding on to all of this stuff? You've got me. I'm here. You've got your granddaughter. I wouldn't give her any of that. It's broken. It's old. You can't even sell it. 
Why are you holding on to it? And the psychological component is, is that it was an extension of him. If she were to allow that, that those items to be removed from the home, she was going to deal with the potential loss of her son as, as an entirety. So the emotional ones are very curious because that's where a person really needs support to understand that the items don't necessarily represent the person, but it's it's getting them to detach from that and to detach that emotional component, it's which can become deep. very challenging. That's one of the things that I've seen on that show is that that's the one thing that I would say that has been very consistent is how bright and crafty these people are that are dealing with this condition because they can justify in their minds a hundred percent why they have that box of cake that was expired eight years ago in their pantry. And they've got a full justification of why they should hold on to that. That seems a hundred percent normal to them, just like you and I were trying to justify something we bought last week at the grocery store going, oh, actually, I'm going to bake a cake with that next week because I'm going to bake a cake with it next week. But it seems that there's no difference in their mind from their perspective than us having a normal conversation about a regular product that's being used, you know, typically within a home. And, and again, it's variable to the person. I, I have some friends who are able to open up their, their closet. And if they haven't worn something that in the goes. last six months, That's me. <laughs> off it goes. You know, they, they donate it. My wife's but, the same but way. But I have to say, Anne, like as... Well, I, 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 wish, I wish they could infuse me with that because <laughs> when I open it up, I start to say, oh, gee, I remember when I wore that or I remember when I fit into that. And it's it's always been those woulda, coulda, shouldas. Well, what if I need a sequin top again? Or what if I'm, you know, what if I'm able to get down to that size that I was in college? You know, I love these things. I could wear them again. And there, there becomes this emotional grapple where, where the, the clothing evokes all these emotions in you. And it may just exhaust you and you decide not to make a decision at all, because that's another big component that everybody might deal with, with some extent, but particularly so with hoarding disorder is that you're afraid of making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. So when you're afraid to make a, the wrong decision, the safest decision is to not make a decision. You know, it's funny looking back real quick. I just want to make a quick comment on this so you can move over to yours, but it's interesting looking back at history. I used to, I mean, I'm 50 and I would look back at people that were 20 or 30 years older than me or longer and go, Oh, they just hold on to everything because they went through the depression and that's just Mm -hmm. what they did. But now that I'm older and wiser and I've seen this, a lot of those people were dealing with the same issues. We just called it something different back then. Mm -hmm. And look what we've been dealing with for close to the past two years with the pandemic. One of the first things we ran into was the scarcity of items. And on the news shows and in the newspapers, we started to see reports People are hoarding um, toilet paper. People are hoarding frozen food. And the word hoarding kept coming up and coming up. 
And it was interesting with a lot of my clients in that where we work so hard to help them deal with the distress of discarding or to try to give them the insight into the fact that there's always more. You can go to the store when you start to run out of milk as opposed to buying eight gallons at a time. Their response to me when these stories started to come out and we were all dealing with this craziness and running to Costco was, I told you so. Oh, no. Um, you know, I clients with, with a, a basement full of toilet paper were sitting pretty in the fact that they they their worst fears were finally realized and they were prepared. They were the survivalists. And it really, where, you know, we, we heard a lot of people doing feng shui and, and trying to clean their homes during the pandemic and doing all sorts of donating. The people with hoarding disorder were feeling validated and secure with this um, being surrounded by their items. And that's a key psychological component as well, because many people who are traumatized do start to fill their fill their environments with stuff because sometimes people have disappointed them in their lives. People aren't always there for them. People aren't always supportive. Well, a newspaper or a teddy bear or um, a, a sweater are not going to criticize you. And there is also that shopper's high with the acquisition that, that a lot of people get. So as homes become more cluttered and I, I, I call them high content homes, start to take over the living space, people report feeling protected. There was a woman who had had her house uh, robbed when she was younger. And then shortly thereafter, her father was shot and killed in a burglary attempt. Wow. And after that, she developed hoarding behavior and her home became very hoarded. There wasn't squalor, but it was, there was limited ability for her to navigate the home. But when asked to explain her situation and her story, and she went through these two experiences, she said, once I started to have the things around me, I thought, well, maybe the burglars won't see me. Maybe they, it will protect me. And a neighbor of hers commented to her, well, you know, if the burglars come to your home and they open the door, it's going to look like you were burgled anyway, and then they'll walk away. So she was able to rationalize a sense of comfort from having things around her. So it should, the main challenge for her was if she decreased the, the items around her or organized or opened up her space, she was making herself vulnerable and she wasn't psychologically ready for that. It's just so, it's so vast, like what can cause this to happen, right? It seems like there's so many different case scenarios that can contribute to someone ending up in this position. So mm -hmm. I, it just blows my mind that, you know, and that's why I guess I keep going back mm -hmm. when people listen to this episode and they think, oh, well, this isn't me, right? This is something I see on TV. I think it's such a big issue that we are all impacted by and various various post-traumatic stress or maybe the pandemic or depression or all of these things can sort of lead to it. Is that 
my understanding. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. And a lot of times when I am running a continuing education workshop or webinar or speaking at a conference and we talk about the percentage of people with hoarding disorder, there are professionals who will come up to me afterwards in a corner and say, thank you. I'm grappling with this. So you, you never know. And there's a lot of respect for the fact that People may not know that the people around them are either dealing with this disorder or living with this disorder, but most of us have been affected by it by Mm -hmm. maybe one degree of separation, either a family member or a relative or somebody who we've heard of because, because it is out there. And I did want to touch on the fact that we've been going through the rather dense facts about hoarding disorder and it can be really depressing knowing that you know there's a close to 100% recidivism rate but it also there there are a lot of options for for change to happen now okay so the former client who was able to decrease her the height of her her hoard from a foot down to you know 18 inches we don't know how she was able to do that but she she found some kind of will With hoarding disorder, there are no drugs, there is no cure, but oftentimes there is um, also issues of depression or anxiety and sometimes OCD, obsessive compulsive components. In those instances, medications like an anti-anxiety or an antidepressant can help somebody stabilize their mood to be able to handle things, but there's no medication directly related to all the factors of hoarding disorder. There's a lot of talk therapy that helps people um, start to process and, and deal with their intrusive thoughts and um, deal, deal with how their, their distorted thoughts work in their minds. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one, um, dialectical behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, um, multiple attempts to be able to get people to process um, these issues, but it takes time. And even if they're going to weekly sessions or every other weekly session, you don't usually start to see some cognitive reasoning changes for maybe 26 sessions. So a lot of times that's a really extended period of time where it could be six months or a year for anything to start to be, be able to click. And a lot of people are also very resistant to talk therapy. Some of the older populations still don't really understand therapeutic services or are distrustful. They say, I don't need to shrink. I don't need to see a psychiatrist. I don't need that. Um, Or people don't have the access to get there or the insurances to cover it. Most instances of dealing with hoarding disorder, and Carolyn, this is maybe where you would come in, is harm reduction where we just really want to help support the person to make their home safe, livable, and functional again. It may not look to other people to be a fully clean, perfect home, but if they're able to have their their code violations taken care of and they're able to make sure that they're toilet and their their shower and the refrigerator are functioning, that their heating and cooling system works, 
that they're able to actually have a place to sleep, a place to eat, um, and a place to watch TV. Those are all the pieces that a person needs to have a functional living situation. And again, the place may look really creative and funky to everybody else, but if they can hit those benchmarks, then they've been able to um, make, make it to a, a livable environment again and respect the fact that that's mm-hmm. the way. And I think that's what we live. see when we get into these environments. We, um, that's what we try to accomplish is to get them healthy and safe and some component and, and do our job the best we can. And a lot of it is, you know, just trying to get them to have more manageable space. And, you know, if they have a moldy basement, trying to like navigate that, maybe move it to the rest of the house where we can kind of at least get the basement safe and healthy. And Now, Anne, is there, a, I was going to ask you, is there a difference between collecting and creating a hoarding situation, you know, where it looks like, you know, there's people that have, oh, I've got this great collection of, I don't know, maybe it's sports memorabilia. I don't know. Uh, I'm just making something up. Uh, but My, where yeah. is that line? Because, you know, people, oh, you're, they throw that word around a lot. Oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. Is there a line in there someplace mm-hmm. or is that very gray? No, there, there's there's a very definite line because collecting is a pastime while hoarding disorder is a compulsion. Collectors look to get collections. They like they, they so you, your man cave may be full of um, and I, I know we're in different states, but I'm going to say you could it could be sealing well, the floor. Be, look Yankee behind him. Tools. You've got and tools. Yeah, tools. See all the tools. <laughs> okay. okay, tools, tools, tools. Um, but if they're if if you're taking care of them and you're displaying them and you take pride in them and they're not impeding the way that you can function, that's considered collecting. Collectors also want to have the the either the best looking or the most functional type of item. So if you have a cordless drill behind you and you're able to find another one that's come out and the battery life is triple what yours is, you might say, you know what, I'm going to replace it. And the key thing is, is that you're going to replace it. You may sell your old one. You might give it your old one to a buddy who doesn't have one, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to hold on to both of them. So for somebody who collects snow domes, if they collect one and then they find a a better one, they will replace it. They may have a thousand different ones, but they're all different and unique and they, they take pleasure in looking at them. They like to have people look at them. With hoarding disorder, you mentioned that the, the woman with the cat figurines, that they were all the exact cat figurine. Yep. That's kind of a, that's kind of the red flag. I mean, unless they were in different positions or different things, if people accumulate the same thing over and over and it doesn't matter what state it's in, whether it's broken or chipped, that goes beyond collecting because collectors are discerning. They, they, they want something that's usable, displayable, likable. Um, people with hoarding disorder with a compulsion, I like cats, so I'm going to get anything and everything with cats on it, even if 
I already own 10 of those. Yeah, see, this was the exact same figurine. There was probably thousands of them and probably eight or 10. I mean, this was a number of years ago, but there was probably eight or 10 of the same Curio lit cabinet that was all plugged in. It was like somebody set them up with a laser. It was perfectly set. Mm -hmm. It's almost creepy. For those of us who don't understand it or, or we can't get into the individual's minds, our reactions um, can often show, our, our nonverbal reactions can often show people what we're thinking. So while cat figurines are not necessary, I mean, they, they could be a bit surprising. Um, I came into my fascination and interest with hoarding disorder through doing home visits as a social worker where the, the environment was not on my agenda at all. And I knock on a door and the person opens it up and you're stunned. You, you, you're not prepared for whatever you see. And I handled a few, few of the cases poorly. Um, I learned a lot of lessons from how to, how to respectfully interact with somebody. And the lessons learned were to prepare yourself and make sure that you're not going to make any kind of nonverbal reaction. So if somebody opens the door, you don't want to pull back in, in horror. You don't want to make like a, a home alone face <laughs> with like, a, oh, my gosh. You don't want to put your hand up to your nose um, if you're reacting to an odor. So sometimes I've learned I, I carry um, Vicks VapoRub with me in case I need to just, you know, <laughs> block the any kind of smell. That's smart. And I've also learned no matter where I go, I, I, I wear wash and wear and I do not wear sand open toed shoes because you don't know what might be creepy crawling around. So when that door opens and you've, they're watching you because they're so used to criticism and they're so used to protecting themselves. And I, I don't mean to be talking, you know, collectively in, in general, but oftentimes the first sense of criticism, that door will close because they have to protect themselves. Um, so my, my, one of my key tools is when that door opens, I have to look behind her, him, her, and very sincerely find something I can compliment. So there was a, a situation where this happened and I'm, I'm doing slow, deep breathing and desperately looking to find something to, to compliment. And I said, Mrs. C, that is an absolutely gorgeous lampshade. It was the only thing I could find that I could be sincere about. Because if you're not sincere, somebody's going to know you're pulling their leg. And I, I stunned her. She was waiting for, gee, you've got a lot of stuff or, or what's going on behind you or anything like that. And that would have been the death knell. She would have closed the door and I would have lost my opportunity. But I took her back and she said, thank you. I made that lampshade and so inside I'm thinking yes and she said I got that that fabric when I was in France and I actually made some curtains and pillowcases with it would you like to see them so by acknowledging something positive and seeing something of beauty that resonated for her I was invited into the home she gave me a tour of the home 
which I didn't have to ask for or seem invasive. So I was able to see the different rooms that she pointed out. And I also listened to the language that she was using. So her beautiful handmade items and then the important pile of photographs on a table that she wanted to put in a, in a um, photo album someday. And, you know, going through and I'm, I'm hearing sort of the, the categories of everything and, and what their value categories were. And then she said, oh, these are two bags of garbage, which I would love to get down to the garbage room. This was in an apartment building in New York City. But. I'm afraid that the building staff are going to make comments to me when I go out or maybe even try to come into my home and do something when I'm not here. So there was a bit of paranoia going on with her too, but she also knew that they had a key to her apartment and she felt very vulnerable that they would try to get in if they saw her out. So listening to her value, um, her, her value categories I wasn't going to start to talk more about her beautiful things other than commenting because I knew that it was of high value to her. The, the pictures were important to her, so that was a lesser category, but still important. But with the garbage, I don't usually try to make a move on my first visit <laughs> because I'm just really trying to engage and develop a relationship with someone. But I said to her, you know, Mrs. C., I could take those down to the garbage room for you if you want, you know, I, and certainly never touching anything um, when I'm there and not moving anything to sit down unless she's moved it. Because if you touch something, you might be disrupting its home space. So she agreed and let me take the two bags of garbage down which was to me phenomenal because oftentimes things just never leave the apartment. And she was willing to let me come back again. We had not really settled on why I was coming to the apartment or who I was other than being a social worker, but she was, she felt it was safe to have me in the home, which was a really, really big deal mm -hmm. because as we've talked this whole time, many people don't allow anyone in the home. So as a social worker, we do a little bit of everything. So I became a garbage hauler and took her garbage down. And some visits, some visits were better than others. Others were very challenging because she had a disabled dog who was incontinent. And so she had those disposable chucks all over the floor. And to be economical, she would blow them dry with a hair blower to reuse them. Oh. And you can imagine mm. the odors in the apartment. So very, very challenging. And this was in a, she was a rental holdout in a high-end apartment building. So they weren't thrilled with having her there either, but she had the right to be there. We worked on harm reduction and worked with her the best we could and took care of her, helped her take care of her dog and helped her muddle through because there's, there's all levels of, of mental health out there in the community, many, many issues, but with hoarding disorder, we're learning ways of trying to interact and work with people and help enable them to be able to make their, their quality of life as, um, as good as possible. So I have a question, Anne, as we have so many contractors that listen to the show and professionals, when we see something like this, who, 
who should we reach out to? What is the best course of action for us to take? I mean, obviously we try to do our part and make a difference, but at the end of the day, do, do we reach out to someone? Do we, you know, talk to a social worker? What, what do you recommend to help someone or where can we get those resources? Oh, each, each situation is different, but I, I look at um, community collaborations because we know that these are not isolated cases, that there's a lot out there. So many, many areas have um, area offices for aging who might be able to send in or offer people to be able to have a home health aid to help them straighten up. Um there are more and more hoarding task forces or ones that are being renamed harm reduction task forces out there where you have first responders, you have police and animal control and public health there. There are ways that communities can start to put up radars or they might already be aware of these people. And some communities are more sophisticated than others where they've got ways of intervening. So one community in New Jersey came up with the idea where they had they they had one young, fairly good looking um, fire firefighter and he would go door to door in the neighborhood where they had identified a, a, a home that was a high content home offering free smoke detectors um, and putting them up. So they did, he didn't go specifically to knock on that door, but he generalized and neutralized saying, hi, you know, I'm meeting everybody in the neighborhood. I'm offering this to you and your neighbors. Can I do this for you? And oftentimes that will give somebody some eyes into the home or the ability to go into the home and put up a safety feature, which could at least reduce the damage if there was a, a, a smoke issue or a fire issue. And for that person to report back and say, gee, there's a lot of clutter, you know, gee, there's squalor. Um, I'm concerned that this person is at risk. And depending on all of that, it, it could go to a geriatric care manager. It could go to an office for aging. It could go to other community agencies or to the, um, the, the community public health or, or animal control or, um, or police or fire. But it, it depends on, on the scenario and the severity of it. So there are now assessment tools out there that have been developed where they will say, okay, these are, these are the areas that are affected. There's animals, there's um, vermin, there's clutter. And then, so there's, there's a subject scale and then a severity rating scale that goes from like yellow to orange. And so people, the, the, the people in the community can make decisions as to what do they offer, what kind of support, and what is, what is a red flag issue where there needs to be some involvement. And in situations with seniors or situations with children or animals, oftentimes there, there needs to be a discussion. Do we get adult protective services involved? Do we get child protective services do we get animal control involved or APS, um, ASPCA involved? Because again, they are not asking, you know, they're not choosing to live this way. Man, 
And we are running out of time. This has been such a great conversation Mm -hmm. and we could almost make this into a three hour Joe Rogan style interview where we just (laughs) keep going and going, but uh, we are running out of time. What is the best way for people to get more information on this? If they're trying to do that, is there a website people can go to? Well, our, our website is hoarding disorder group dot education and the word education is fully spelled out it's not just edu and that's information regarding basics of hoarding disorder and also there is a resource group um, resource guide for services within the tri-state area where i am so new york connecticut and new jersey of um different therapists and contractors and remediation and and professional organizers, lawyers, anybody who might get involved in situations. We we have that with people who have offered to be on the website because they've they've got an understanding and experience with hoarding disorder. Um, Secondly, there is the International OCD Foundation. Their website is IOC D is David, F is Frank.org. There is a whole category for hoarding disorder on there. Um, I'm a member of their conference planning team. You'll find a wealth of information there, both for family members and for people who are self-identified with, with hoarding challenges. And then for licensed professionals, and, and I also do it for family members, on my educational website, which is Aging Remix, A G I N G R E M I X dot com, we're starting to prep our our website ca- schedule for 2022 with different workshops and webinars on um, issues of, of hoarding disorder and and treatment modalities. And thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. It's time for us to wrap it up. Thanks again. I'm Eric G. And I'm Caroline B. And you've been listening to Around the the House. It's Eric G. from Around the House. Are you planning a decking or siding project this year? If you are, you've got to check out my friends at Millboard. Millboard is a completely different kind of composite decking and cladding that enhances outdoor spaces with enduring distinction. Hand-molded from the finest oak, it realistically mimics the natural grain and color of premium hardwood. If you're looking for something that doesn't look like plastic and instead real wood, check out millboard.com. Make sure and check out that interview we did just a few weeks back. That's millboard.com.